I was talking earlier to the engineer who volunteers his time to help the monastery to draw out plans for our buildings. He was inspired by the uh, fact that we're having the Buddha relics installed in the Buddha statue in our new hall next week. He's asking me about the experience on the mountain in Sri Lanka, Sri Pada, where Buddha relics manifested in Ajananan's shoulder bag when we travelled there and made a pilgrimage up the mountain to the Buddha's footprint. It's hard to explain some of the more miraculous things that happen around the Buddha and Arahants. All I can say is that I helped to carry the shoulder bag, Ajananan's shoulder bag, up the mountain. It was with me all the time till we were on top where we were chanting and meditating. So I can guarantee it wasn't interfered with. But how all the relics appeared inside it, perhaps it's more than words can describe. <coughs> And the engineer also mentioned he had designed a restaurant and accommodation at Anuradhapura in Sri Lanka, near where the Mahabodhi tree is. And uh, his friend, the owner, a very pious Buddhist, had a shrine room built and in the shrine room regularly relics manifest. It's a man who chants and meditates regularly. Relics or datu, they say, come from the body of an enlightened Buddha or enlightened Savaka, disciples of the Buddha as a result of the purity of their minds through the practice, the removal of avichar, ignorance that conditions the mind under, underlies the, and is a causal conditioning process for craving and attachment to arise. It's been removed through the practice the mind of a noble one, Buddha or noble disciple, is free from ignorance, in practical terms, free from upadana, clinging and attachment to the five kendas. The mind no longer views the kendas, sees them as self. 
mind is turned away from its former clinging to the candors, former delusion. The unenlightened person sees the candors as permanent, as a basis for happiness, as self. is a habitual conditioned sense of ownership of experience of kandas, both rupa kanda and the nama kandas. So this is where we are practicing. In the place of practice is the five kandas, more than a physical or geographical location. It's this body and this mind. The nature of the candors, the candors are just as they are, physical, mental phenomena. But because of our habit over time, for a long, long period of time, we've just got so used to them, we just take them for granted, we're complacent, we just assume this experience of this body and mind is as it seems, when in fact what the Buddha pointed out is it's not what it seems. We're deluded, <coughs> hence we suffer. Where's the delusion? It's all around us, it's everywhere. As long as the mind is conditioned by ignorance, not knowing, not understanding, and the delusions there all the time. And someone asked Ajahn Chah, where is it? He said, you're like somebody riding a horse, asking where the horse is, right under you. The Buddha compared them to a murderer, somebody who's planning to murder you, but they're sneaky, they have to get close enough to do the job, so they don't present themselves as a murderer on the outside. They say if you're, a, compares you to somebody who's well off, who employs servants and other people, so they present themselves, they come to seek employment with you as a, a servant and assistant they have skills and they have things to offer you, their knowledge and their skills, so you take them on and they build up your trust through working hard for you and being close to you till you become very reliant on them and take them as they are, assume that they're your servant who will help you. All the while they're just planning to kill you and they're waiting for that moment when you've They've got your trust, your guard is down, and then you're alone with them, and then they pull out their sword and kill you. On the outside, they presented themselves as somebody willing to be a loyal servant, assisting you. In the, on the inside, they had the mind of a murderer from day one. 
wasn't that they were just a murderer at the last instant when they drew their sword. The, the mind had been the mind of a murderer all along. The candors are like that. They're a basis for suffering, clinging and suffering from day one. It's not like only occasionally or only when we notice it. It's, it's there all along. They're unreliable. They're not a source of security, not a source of happiness, lasting, true happiness. We tend not to notice until maybe dukkha manifests enough that kind of forces us to think, oh, there's some problem here. But whether we think things are going well or not, just by their very nature and by our mind's ignorance, and they're a cause of dukkha right from the right from the word go. They're tricking us. So how do you prevent a murderer? Well, you have to investigate and be on your guard and check and look. Investigate to the point where you can catch them before they've done the deed. To be very very sharp very, very clear and observe and look carefully. So our practice is learning to look carefully at the truth of this body and mind, the five candors, to try and expose their true nature, their unreliability. What is truly reliable is Buddha Dhamma Sangha. It's our safe, secure refuge. The candors are not. The candors are just conditions, phenomena. In the end they are just what they are. But this clinging based on the ignorance is where the problem comes. We seek security in that which is not secure, not permanent, not stable. We keep getting caught out. Other you know, similes the Buddha used, the ones about Rupa Kandas, like the foam bubbles on the river. Foam, through the movement of the water, foam is created. It doesn't last very long. It's got no substance to it very quickly disappears, comes up and disappears after a while. You grab it and it disintegrates. Namakandas are the same. Feelings like the ripples or the bubbles that come when rain falls onto a pond or a lake. Just get ripples of water quickly disappear, constantly arising, passing away. Perception like a mirage in the summer heat where we see that shimmering effect of the heat on the ground sometimes gives a sense of light or makes a road look like water, <coughs> occasionally even creates whole images. It's just a mirage. You never get there, and you're driving along the road and you see the, the mirage, but you never actually reach it. 
salt formations are compared to like softwood pulp from a banana tree. Man goes in the forest looking for hardwood, starts cutting into a banana tree, he never finds any hardwood, constantly just finding layers and layers of flesh, pulp, and then in the end nothing. Consciousness, sense consciousness is compared with a um, magic trip, trick, conjurer's trick. If you watch, you learn, you quickly get disenchanted with it once you know how it all works, how the system, the principle underlying the trick works. But until that point, it's always fooling us, grabs our attention seems like something very important, very special. Again, it's just images and sensations arising, passing away. So we get deluded by the candors, and our practice is developing the skills, the qualities of mind that will help us to see through the delusion, see their deluding nature. So much of our practice is based around arousing effort. It's that kind of consistent effort, continuous effort, that will help us to break through delusion, see it for what it is, see it as the cause of suffering. We have to keep looking, keep bringing the mind to the point where it can look. So we have to keep developing the path factors we also have to have the resilience, the patient endurance to keep doing that because you're working from within the candas as you practice. Yeah, the candas bring us dukkha. You can only work from within them, from where you're at. We can't escape from the candas even though we like to. In short term we escape through sleep or through sensual indulgence, trying to blot out any dukkha that we're experiencing. But we ultimately, we can't escape them. We have to contemplate them. Even as we meditate, in the beginning of our meditation, we're having to learn to bring up mindfulness that continuity of mindfulness that brings samadhi in with it, states of calm, pity and sukha. Even that can seem like a, an escape, just want to gain samadhi, just want to gain some bliss, so we don't have to experience the coarseness of the candors. Even this is deluding. We have to be contemplating that clinging as well, the clinging to the wish for escape and the wish for, for bliss. But it's still a necessary part of the path, it's not to give up the practice of samadhi, just to know that it's still from within the candors.
as we practice, we need to develop some calm, some peace, in order to have enough clarity, stability of mind that we can look back at at the candors and see them as they are. In the clarity of mindfulness, in the refinement of mind that comes with samadhi, gives us the stability, the spaciousness to be able to see, look at the candors and see them as they are without without delusion, without wrong perceptions. Ultimately, we come to understand the candors, we get to see them as impermanent, as a source of suffering, as not self. As we practice, we have to keep investigating those truths to see see for ourselves from direct experience. Keep uncovering what's inside, what's underneath the surface of experience. Obviously that takes some courage because, again, as humans we tend to be seeking security and comfort in what we're used to what's habitual, what seems okay, seems all right, as long as things are going well, we tend to just go along with everything. But as bhikkhus, we're a bit braver than that. We're learning to go under the surface and look deeper to the realities of the the candors. It's not always, at first, it's not always easy to face up to the fact, you know, things that you take for granted, things that you're used to, are actually causing you suffering. States of mind, memories, perceptions, views, opinions, things that we took as reliable, are we're starting to find as unreliable. So we have to use all the factors of the path to support us in, in this practice. The dana, the sila, development of the Brahma Viharas, and so on, so that mind is steady enough, and we have that sense of well-being, trust in the practice that we can investigate more deeply, go under the surface. So even though we're aiming to get to the point where the mind lets go of its attachment and clinging to the candas. This letting go doesn't mean to say we let go of everything. We don't let go of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. We don't let go of our sila. We don't let go of practice of mindfulness. Don't let go of our meditation object, so on. The letting go of the candors and the abandonment of clinging is a more subtle thing than that. It comes about from within the candors. As we observe more closely and practice more continuously, we 
can get to know our own habits. And most of us tend towards comfort, seeking comfort, convenience. We're like the chicken Ajahn Chah used to talk about. And the chicken it trusts its owner because the owner brings food every day. It wants to believe that the owner means means it well. So it sees the owner coming, it's happy. When the owner picks it up, thinks the owner is just showing warmth and affection, gives it more food, looks after it, protects it from predators and so on. But all the while the owner is just planning to kill it. Picks it up, it's just weighing to see if it's heavy enough yet, whether it's worth killing. We like that with our candors. We're constantly trying to find some kind of refuge in our candors. So naturally we get disappointed. We keep getting frustrated, stressed. What we're learning here is to put more trust in the Dhamma, the Dhamma that comes through mindful awareness and contemplation to see the true nature of the candors. It's the, the Dhamma that will actually brighten the mind and lead to the release from this clinging and attachment. We can use the candors as a tool, but ultimately we have to let go of them. And the mind will want to let go of them when it sees their true nature. It won't trust in the body because it knows the body is impermanent, like the foam. It's constantly changing and aging. Every molecule or atom, or whether you look at the the body on a as a whole, in the way it looks in a mirror, the way. We identify with the whole body or you look at it un- under a microscope, every molecule and atom. It's the same, it's subject to change, to aging, it's fragile. Near or far, coarse or refined, superior, inferior, the body of the past, the present, the future. In the end, you look at it from whatever angle, whatever aspect we come to the same conclusion. It's impermanent, unreliable. We don't own it. We ultimately, we can't control it. And this is teaching the mind. And this, the result of this is the mind, it releases its clinging, its expectations, its desire to control. The mind goes peaceful in a way it relates looks at the body, the attitude we have, the view we have, changes. We contemplate the body, we're with the body, but then we are released from the clinging, the attachment, the identification. Feelings are the same, we keep contemplating feelings, how they condition the mind, the endless seeking of pleasure, aversion to pain. Now we're just looking at feeling as feeling, as a phenomena in nature. What's its nature? It arises, it passes away. Its limitations, the limitations of pleasure. You know, we can, can't find any pleasure that is continuous or sustaining. 
all the activities we're engaged in to seek more pleasure <coughs> never bring us total satisfaction. Harder but also necessary is contemplate pain. <coughs> the aim of the practice is not to just attain a blissful state of samadhi. <coughs> So we have no more pain to experience. And the Buddha said, come out of that blissful state and contemplate. You know, there's painful feelings in, in the body, aches and pains of the joints, of the back, of the muscles. Come up, contemplate them. See feeling as feeling. See it's changing nature, it's unreliable nature. Physical pain, mental pain, you know, the pains of disappointment, aversion to the failures of we have in life and the mistakes and the unpleasant experiences that come our way. Painful memories, painful thought formations. As mindfulness progresses, even the pain of just sense contact the stimulation or the overstimulation sometimes. It's disturbing to the mind, living in a sensual realm, constantly bombarded with sense data, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, remembering past sense data, anticipating more sense data. Very wearing on the mind. All the feeling we get from this, And sometimes when you do develop some real peace of mind, some real calm, you come out of that and you start to experience through your senses again. You understand a bit what the Buddha was talking about, like a cow with its skin stripped off its body, you know, all the nerves exposed. So everything becomes very painful, it's sensitive to everything, even what would normally be a pleasant experience you can actually see that it's still a cause of suffering another way we look at the candors we see how the four of the candors are the result of past karma you know, feeling is all coming to us as generated from our past karmic actions if we're having a lot of painful feeling, well, there's karma behind that. Pleasant feeling is generated by past karma. Some of it is just the feeling that comes with being born as a human being. Some of it is more specific. We've done certain things and this brings clear results back to us. Pleasant, unpleasant feeling in the worldly, the worldly winds that we experience gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences. This is our karma, it brings feeling to us. The memories, the perceptions we carry around are resultant karma that we, the conditioning process has brought up for us. We've accumulated through craving attachment, we hold on to perceptions, 
as we contemplate, see how many fixed perceptions we've built up, how they keep coming up in our mind, fixed perceptions about what is right, wrong, what is good, bad, what we like, what we don't like, perceptions about ourselves, viewing ourselves as a certain way, certain kind of person, perceptions of other people, See often how flimsy they are, how based on such little evidence, just one thing happens, we identify with the perception so strongly that it can color the way we think for months and years, but with very little background data or evidence. You might just look at your perceptions of people that you know, family, friends, other bhikkhus. Perceptions of places, people, people we've barely met, we might already have formed a very strong perception about a place. How accurate are they? How reliable are they? The more you investigate, the more you seem very unreliable, unstable, can change, our perceptions can change so easily. A lot of our investigation is seeing the results of karma and what it's brought us. And then also seeing the importance of being mindful and contemplating in the Sankara Kanda. It's where we're generating fresh karma, fresh volition, the intentional action of body, speech and mind. It's where we develop the path factors. We're training this Sankara Kanda. So we're working within the Sankara Kanda to let go of the Sankara Kanda. Sounds almost like a contradiction. We have no choice. We have to work within the Kandas, work with the raw material we have. But by developing the path factors, you know, the Sila, Samadhi, Panya, then we're training the Sankara Kanda in developing good karma Abandoning unwholesome karma, the negative mind states that we get caught into, negative thoughts, views, opinions. Developing the positive path factors, ultimately leading to disenchantment. Disenchantment because the candors themselves are seen as something is not to cling to. Because they're impermanent, unstable. We can't own them. You can't own a thought. A thought just arises, passes away according to conditions. Ultimately what becomes our refuge is the Dhamma, the insight into the reality, the nature of Kandas, the way they are. They're just like that. So even if you're besieged by you know, lots of negative Sankara Kanda, in the end it's just like that, it just arises and passes away according to the conditions and causes. So a lot of our reflection is just ref looking backwards at the candors and saying, well they're just like that, that's just the way they are. Arises, passes away, it's just that, it's just thought. When we have a lot of negative thoughts, we have a lot of unpleasant feeling, we feel lousy, we feel depressed, we feel unhappy, 
It's just like that. That's just what happens when you have a lot of negative thoughts. This is a higher wisdom we're developing, a wisdom that looks back at experience and sees it for what it is, not giving too much meaning or importance to it, not exaggerating it, and learning just to look in a more equanimous way at our own experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the good, the bad, and it's just like that. It's just the way it is. The way the body is, it's just like that gets older, sometimes it gets sick, things go wrong with it. It's just like that. So the Buddha taught us to investigate the candors, and he said, if you keep investigating long enough, continuously enough, you come to the conclusion that there's not something to cling on to or identify with. We get to a state of disenchantment. Well, disenchantment doesn't mean depression, it means freedom. We no longer wish to cling to something which is ultimately compared with a murderer. You don't want to stay with something that's about to kill you. You let go, you give it up. Ultimately the mind knows that. If you train it to the point it knows letting go is the correct thing. It's the correct attitude, the correct way to deal with the candors. It's to abandon the attachment to them, to let go of them, because they're not self. And this process has a purifying effect on the mind. It brightens the mind the more of this insight we develop. And ultimately, if the mind is completely released from its delusion, then the mind of the arahant has that effect back onto the body. as a purifying effect on the rupa kanda, the bodily kanda. So when they cremate an enlightened teacher or the Buddha, then you get relics. Even before they cremate them, sometimes the hair turns to relics, dhatu. Even the excrement from an arahant turns to dhatu. Lumpur man, Lumpur Charlie dug up the toilet pit and gained relics. The blood turns to dhatu. Lumpur the day he was dying, they were wiping away blood from him and all the cloth ended up with crystallized dhatu on it. That's the effect of the mind that's seen through the candors, seen in the true nature of the candors, no longer deluded. And this is what we're working towards through our practice. So tonight I'll leave you with these reflections and so we can carry on practicing.